You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, everyone. I am Erin Decker, Senior Research Fellow with the Mercatus Center, and today I'm joined by Malte Dold, Assistant Professor of Economics at Pomona College. Um, and he's here with me to talk about order liberalism. He is um, the second one in a short series about order liberalism. Malte, welcome. Thanks for having me, Erwin. Um, so order liberalism, let's just uh, jump right in. Um, what does that mean to you? And uh, why should we care about this uh, tradition of um, what is typically conceived of as a sort of a German liberal school of economics? So um, order liberalism can be understood as a uh, political economy tradition that emerged in predominantly German-speaking academia in the 1930s, um, which was the interwar period, uh, a time of uh, political instability, economic instability, social instability, uh, and uh, order liberal Auto liberals um, considered that as you know a crisis of modernity. Actually, right um, there were uh, you know the economic, social, and political turmoils of the Weimar Republic. Uh, there were pending fascists and communist movements, a mass unemployment, hyperinflation, um, and generally speaking, economic depression. And and, and auto liberals, um, you know, said we need an answer as liberals to those. Uh, to those historical developments. Um, now, obviously, the, the obvious question is, what does the cryptic order mean when you combine yeah. it with, with liberal? Um, now, the liberal part is maybe the easier one, right? The, you know, the liberal reaction is really a reaction against the extreme views at the time uh, on the right, which was, uh, you know, fascism, and on the left, it was communism. Um, and, you know, the liberals um, sought to oppose power concentrations by enabling what they thought is a privilege-free, equal participation in both markets and politics. So that's a liberal idea. Now, what is the auto idea? Um, that's a bit more difficult. But um, the reference to auto can be understood as a distance to the unregulated laissez-faire uh, liberalism of, of the 19th century um, and uh, the explicit endorsement of the idea that markets must be embedded in non-market institutions, uh, particularly legal institutions, but um, also educational institutions, religious institutions, the media, civil society at large. Now, a core idea uh, also, when we think of order, is the idea of a strong state. Now, a strong state is not an authoritarian state, but actually a state of limited government that is non-corruptible, right, by private interests. Um, and uh, the task of the state is then to basically provide and enforce general rules of the game, right, uh, and uh, importantly, to do so by little intervention into the process, uh, into the market and social process itself. 
so this is sort of like a combination of uh, the liberal idea on the one hand uh, and the auto idea on the other hand. And let me just add one thing. Um, Auto-liberalism is by no means a, a monolithic tradition, right, that speaks with one voice. Uh, and you could, there are multiple strands, but roughly speaking, there are two um, camps. On the one hand, there is the law and economics tradition um, of the Freiburg School of Economics, as represented most prominently by Walter Eucken and Franz Böhm. Uh, which focuses on the discussion of the right set of rules for competitive economic order. And on the other hand, there is a more sociological version of order liberalism um, that was basically propagated by Wilhelm Röpke and Alex, Alexander Rüstow, most prominently, which highlights the necessary social roots of a stable liberal order and, you know, institutions such as the family, the church and civil society um, become core, um, you know, core targets of analysis. So this so is also, roughly so speaking. Have, have a, so so if, I, if I can can just follow up on that, do they also have a different concept of order if the one thinks more along legal lines and the other more along sociological lines? Well, Yes. I mean, in the sense that, um, you know, the one has to be a bit um, careful with the expression, right? Because originally, you know, um, neither of these two strands that I just um, mentioned uh, coined the term order, right? It was an exposed attribution of those strands. Uh, but of course, you can see a different emphasis here. Um, if you think of the law and economics tradition of the Freiburg School, um, you naturally get a, an emphasis on the legal order as sort of the focal point for a lot of like social processes, right? And if you think about the sociological um, strand, you can understand that order is not first and foremost a stable legal order, but might actually be a social order, um, you know, where tradition plays a role, right? Where, um, you know, the, the social organization plays a role. And uh, you could maybe understand that much more as a bottom-up approach to order, right, the sociological approach, uh, rather than the, you know, bit more top-down understanding of order of the law and economics tradition of the Freiburg School. Yeah. And was there then an idea that somehow these these other orders were being eaten up or so, or being threatened by the economy of the interwar period? Or what was precisely the idea that um, these other orders needed to be reinforced? Yeah, I mean, the I mentioned at the outset this general fear that there was a threat to civilization and modernity, you know, and an instability there. And uh, one core problem that unites all strands of, of all the liberalism is actually this upcoming, you know, mass society, mass culture, uh, mass politics, etc., where um, a an unordered process, if you just have sort of like an evolutionary process of these uh, mass developments, we might end up with, um, you know, situations that ultimately might not be liberal. Now, uh, what could that be? 
Well, obviously, um, if you think about the social and political movements at the time, it could be radical political movements that disrespect individual rights, right? That could be one. Uh, but there's also sort of a complicated history, particularly when you look at the sociological strand of auto-liberalism with, um, you know, consumerism, with, uh, with mass media, with a lot of aspects what we nowadays would consider you know, part and parcel of a, a, a modern complex society. And, and all the liberals um, had, in that sense, a more conservative ring um, sometimes uh, to them and under, uh, understood themselves as a reaction to these new movements that would disrupt old um, social structures. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, and... Oh, yeah, well, to, to, I think, to, sorry, just to follow up on that, I mean, why should we care, right? I think you asked yeah. that. I mean, you could say, just my last remark was, isn't that, you know, sort of maybe something that people in the 1930s um, cared about, particularly those that, you know, had a slight conservative preference for old social structures, you know, wanted to go to pre-Weimar time in that sense. Well, I think, obviously, and this is not uh, only me thinking that, that the recent rise in, in populism across the West um, sort of puts the fragility and instability of the liberal order back on the uh, on the political agenda, but also on the academic agenda. You know, and, and think of you know um, you know populist movements in the West, such as Brexit, but also Don Donald Trump in the U.S. Uh, that was a real blow, right? To um, the liberalism and liberal scholarship at the time. And there was a lot of soul searching among liberal scholars uh, and since liberal elites or, or the ideas at least were often blamed for, you know, our socioeconomic evils, including, you know, inequality. Uh, if you think about the inequality between an urban elite and the left behinds in rural areas, but also other things such as climate change, right? Or market concentration in, in the tech industry. And, Often the liberal ideas, right, were blamed for, for these developments. Now, there are two questions I think that um, we need to answer. One is, um, if this critique is justified, then can actually liberals, and particularly order liberals, learn from mistakes and come up with a uh, contemporary version of liberalism that convinces people? Um, and second, if actually the critique is unjustified, how can you better sell your core ideas as, yeah. as liberals in the political process? It also sounds like they had an idea where somehow um, an initial state of, of competition and openness or an initial state of individualism and um, <clears throat> sort of social norms that emphasize resp individual responsibility would not necessarily be stable over time. So they could, I don't know, be corrupted by the circumstances or be corrupted over time. And then you had to restore it somehow to to a more competitive or more individualist sort of um, cultural set of beliefs? Yeah, I mean, this is, a, a, I, I think, an under-researched area still. I mean, in, in the sense that um, your question is well taken, because if, you, if we take the law and economics tradition uh, of the Freiburg um, School, uh, what you would get is a superficial reading could be something like, well, you just need the right legal institutional framework, right, that, um, you know, installs some sense of stability uh, and some sense of competition in the economy, and then everything else is okay, right? 
yeah. you know. Um, well, what um, obviously the more sociological strand of autoliberalism would argue is we cannot just think in economic terms when we think about the stability of the liberal order, right? On some level, you need to also consider whether liberal values are inculcated in the citizens who ultimately are responsible in supporting the liberal order. And, and I'm not sure whether actually the sociological strand of auto liberalism had the right answers here, um, you, know, got, you know, advocating for like, um, in a way, you know, small shopkeepers, um, artisans, etc., which sounded a bit like a pre-industrial uh, and pre-industrialized version of a society and might not be a powerful answer um, in, a, a, in a complex modern society. But I think the, the diagnosis um, from an analytical point of view is well taken, that a purely economic or economistic um, you know, approach to the question of, uh, of the stability of a liberal order might actually miss important cultural and social questions. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so if we would take it to the present, right, we would also think that something like the rise of a knowledge economy or even of a gig economy would create a different set of social circumstances also that will have an impact on the type of individualism or the type of uh, social ties that people build. And that then has an important, broader social consequence. Yes, and absolutely. And in fact, you know, even like when we look at people, uh, you know, that supported this law and economics tradition, like Walter Eucken, right? They, and obviously that predates all the stuff that you just mentioned, you know, think about, you know, social media, think about developments in, 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 in communication, et cetera, of, of, the, of the last, you know, few decades. But what is important is sort of, the, the general insight that thinking in orders means that orders are interdependent, right? That we do not just have the economic order that we can analyze uh, independently from, let's say, the world of social communication, but there is an, you know, a, a clear overlap uh, and mutual influence. Uh, what we obviously can see nowadays and order liberal analysis of this, an autoliberal analysis of this situation would clearly understand that the type of individualism that we get in a liberal society depends on how we structure these mutually interdependent social orders, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I want to go back for a moment to something you said earlier, um, because I called it a school of economics, and then you said, no, it's a school of political economy. And I want to unpack a little bit what that difference is. I know that uh, in, in some of your work, you have em emphasized that the order liberals essentially have a, a normative or a value-laden program. So is, is that what you mean when you say you call them a school of political economy, that, that values and, 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 and normative cons considerations are, in, are always part of the economic analysis? Um, that's, that's very much... Uh, uh, a reason why I said uh, it's actually uh, you know political economy tradition. Um, if you think about obviously when you know political economy traditions that are very well known in the Anglo-American world, it would be you know the Scottish Enlightenment tradition of political economy of, of Smith uh, and others. Uh, and 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 Smith obviously was not just an economist but also a moral philosopher. Um, and in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, 
I do understand the scholarship of order liberalism being a political economy tradition. And I think sort of that it's, it's normative and explicitly value-laden is actually not a bad thing. Uh, when we look at current discussions um, about the instability of the liberal order, well, people are not just looking for economic arguments, right? They're looking for cultural and political ar- arguments to overcome um, the current crisis of the liberal order. And, and, and also for, you know, a lot of economists, actually, um, I think it's not a bad thing, uh, to be intellectually transparent and honest about your normative commitments, right? Now, what are the most distinctive features of the order liberalism when it comes to normative commitments? Um, broadly speaking, I think the first one is, one that comes with the breadth of the political economy program. And it is not a narrow technocratic um, program, but it really tries to tackle big questions regarding you know, the good society or well-functioning um, economy. Um, and there are a couple of normative commitments um, you know, that are interesting. And I want to highlight a few of them by referring to different thinkers. And let me start with Walter Eucken, okay, being, you know, the most well-known proponent, particularly of the Freiburg School. The interesting thing is, you know, in his principles of economic policy, that unfortunately I, I think is still not translated in English or is about to be translated. But anyway, he starts the the whole treatise by saying that Social security and social justice are the greatest concerns of our time, right? Uh, that motivates our economic analysis. And uh, interestingly, um, he says that auto liberalism is normatively committed to a functional and humane order. Now, what does that mean? Well, functional, you know, for economists means basically the implementation of economic principles with the goal of efficiency, right? Overcoming some sort of scarcity problem. But the humane part is interesting. Uh, That means that you also, as an auto-liberal political economist, you consider principles, ethical principles of uh, of fairness that enable basically the self-determined and dignified life of individuals. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but the important thing is that the economic order is also seen through an ethical lens, and the ethical lens is one that emphasizes human flourishing and a dignified life, right? And to put it maybe in Deirdre McCloskey's uh, terms, you know, that the common man is given a goal, right? Is very much also a radical egalitarian starting point of uh, auto-liberal um, scholarship. Um, and uh, that's interesting. And obviously, when we talk about that, we also have to talk about how much emphasis there is on power in the auto-liberal tradition, right? And particularly, you know, getting rid of um, power when we analyze social and political um, um, games. Now, the core idea here is obviously the, the idea of competition, right? As yeah. sort of the instrument that is an instrument of, you know, the German term um, would be at Machtungsinstrument, which means an instrument of the deprivation of power, basically, right? Yeah. Um, that allows not just, and this is important, not just for economic efficiency, but particularly 
for the the core egalitarian idea to to um to establish some form of equality of opportunity when it comes to both the market game and the political game. So sorry, uh, that's no, Walter no, Eug. No, that's no, Walter no, no, Eug. No, no, no. Yeah. So I was going to ask. I was going to ask about the other thinkers because I'm so, interested. Do yeah. they have other normative commitments than Walter Eugen does? So the interesting thing is Walter Eugen. You could say, well, that's that's a rather abstract thing, you know, a functional and humane order. And the interesting thing is, obviously, Eugen himself um, comes up with what he calls constitutive and regulative uh, regulative principles of the economic order. Now, somehow, these principles. You know, including you know a stable currency, open markets, the protection of private property. Um, they drop a little bit like mana from the from heaven, right? In the sense that him as an enlightened economist, he comes up with these principles that he thinks lead to a humane and um, functional social order. Now. Victor Warnberg, being sort of like uh, a very prolific auto liberal scholar over the last three, four decades, said auto liberals need to ground those constituting principles that Van that that Eugen came up with in a contractarian logic, right? So, in the sense, what um, Warnberg does is to say the normative commitments of auto liberals is one that takes voluntary agreements of individuals seriously. Uh, that leads him to advocate for consumer sovereignty as a guiding normative principle in the economic realm and citizen sovereignty as a guiding normative principle in the political realm. And, and consumer sovereignty, by and large, would mean you know, a situation in which consumers' common interests are the prin principal, quote-unquote, controlling force of market activity, and citizen sovereignty would be a situation in which citizens' common interests are the principal controlling force of the political realm. Um, now, that would be sort of like a, an explicit normative commitment to contractarian logic and the twin ideas of consumer and citizen sovereignty. Uh, that, that sounds a lot like Buchanan, right? Because on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the public choice school and about Buchanan's contractarianism. Is, are, they, are they close to one another? So um, what Warnberg tries, Victor Warnberg tries to do in his uh, advancement of auto-liberalism auto is basically marrying, on the one hand, uh, Buchanan's contractarianism with Hayek's, you know, more evolutionary approach to, to economics. And in that sense, you know, recent um, scholarship on auto-liberalism building on Warnberg can be very much seen as trying to build a bridge between constitutional economics or constitutional political economy of, of Buchanan and the uh, auto-liberalism of the last 20 years or so. Um, and there are a lot of commonalities. I think there are a few differences also um, that uh, we might want to highlight. Uh, one is that, you know, when you look at constitutional political economy and people also writing the tradition of Buchanan, you see an emphasis on the discussion of how to rein in political excesses, right? Um, so really, how to come up with rules for the political game, um, you know, I'm simplifying here. Um, and all the liberals, by and large, often focus more on how can you actually come up with rules for the market, right, uh, in order to, to prevent power concentrations in the market. And I think there is a real difference in emphasis when you look at um, 
just a scholarship, right? Um, yeah. you know, the public choice scholarship focuses more on on the political game and how to come up with rules there. And, and auto liberals often discuss more the market and and might neglect to some degree actually the rules for the political game. I don't think, by the way, that this is necessarily due to um, a lack of emphasis in the work of the Freiburg School. Uh, both Eucken and Böhm were, were very much aware of the problems of political power concentrations if you do not come up with the right gains, uh, right rules for the political game. But there is, an, there is a difference in emphasis here. Um, and I also think there's a difference in emphasis when it comes to the more sociological understanding uh, of auto-liberalism li- auto compared to a more economic understanding of rules in constitutional political economy. I think auto-liberals always understood that when we think about the stability of the liberal order, we cannot just think about the economic rules of the game. We also have to think about how we structure you know, education, how we structure media, how we structure civil society. Uh, and I think that's a real, again, a difference in emphasis here when we compare constitutional political economy with, with the auto-liberal scholarship. I mean, but this this moves also right into your own work because you you've you've done quite a bit on on looking into how Buchanan thought about individuals. So would you say, say that this is a, a a blind spot of 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 Buchanan? This this development of individuality and his his excessive focus on political rules, or um, is that not the way to understand it? Now, it's true. In my own uh, work, I you know sympathetically uh, criticized Buchanan for not emphasizing the social aspects when it comes to his discussion of individuality and, and individualism. Um, and let, let me just start with a general uh, point here. I think the late Buchanan saw actually a lot of these aspects, but I think that the public choice Buchanan of the 60s and 70s didn't really emphasize uh, the point that I'm about to make. Now, Buchanan argues by and large, right, uh, the homo economicus model is unique, is a uniquely appropriate caricature of human behavior when we analyze, um, you know, political and economic institutions. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that's interesting. Now, um, obviously, there are good arguments uh, that Buchanan and other public choice scholars have on their side um, to stress the homo economicus assumption. One is, you know, if we assume it in the market for a typical market analysis, we might also have to assume it when we analyze, you know, the political game and the assumption of behavioral uh, symmetry. Um, but I think there's also a real um, danger if you do that. And the danger is actually one that Buchanan himself saw. Buchanan himself in an article, um, uh, entitled The Ethics of Constitutional Order. Um, it, in that art- article, he argues that it is basically meaningless to talk about constitutional change unless individuals are actually motivated to think about the existing legal political rules that affect their lives. Now, obviously, um, homo economici might, might not think at all about uh, you know, how to change the the institutions and the rules of the game. Why? Because it's quite costly. So there's actually always that tension, a free rider yeah. problem. Who actually will be active in the political game? And yeah, interesting. 
that's right, who will vote, uh, um, I, one of the you know conundrums in the public choice literature, uh, why should you vote at all, why should you discuss, why should you engage in public discussions, why should you go to committee meetings yeah. if you're an academic, right? Um, but the interesting thing is Buchanan himself said, ultimately, the liberal order will rely on the citizen's ethical obligation to enter into an ongoing constitutional dialogue. And that's interesting, right? So he diagnoses that, but I think he doesn't then um, sufficiently discuss the institutional prerequisites to allow into individuals and to motivate individuals to enter in, into that uh, constitutional dialogue. Um, and, and in fact, when you think, for example, about the scholarship of Sam Bowles in his book, uh, The Moral Economy, there's a real danger when you think about institutions only from the perspective of the home economicus model, because you might ultimately come up with maybe institutional setups that crowd out those intrinsic motivations to engage you know, in public discussions, moral dialogue, and ultimately constitutional choice. Um, and, and I think that is something that I tend to emphasize in my own, in my own, own work, how much scholars who are interested in the stability of, of the liberal order must engage with a more realistic model of the individual that takes also the moral or the capability of moral reasoning seriously, um, and doesn't just think of individuals as a bunch of homo economici. Yeah. So, so if we bring this back to ordo liberalism, they have sometimes been accused, perhaps uh, even by myself, of of a certain elitism when it comes to uh, the governors. And now in in Buchanan, you sort of sketch an idea that all the individuals must be involved in this political process. Is that also the commitment of the ordo liberals, or do they have do, do they have an an image of sort of enlightened? lawmakers or perhaps constitutional reformers that is somewhat more elitist or um, perhaps a kind of distribution of, uh, of of intellectual labor sort of image where it's a it's a smaller group that does the constitutional reform rather than all of society yeah I that's a great question uh, and in fact I I just want to refer to to Kenneth Dyson's work in, in this context who has written um, and published a his book on conservative liberalism, order liberalism, and the state. And what Dyson nicely does in the book, uh, I think, is to show that order liberalism is, can be understood as a branch of conservative moral philosophy that that subscribes to some, you know, form of aristocratic liberalism. Uh, what does that mean? Well, clearly, it emphasizes, you know. Things such as character, virtue, and the noble pursuit of disinterested truth, in opposition yeah. to, you know, let's say materialism, positivism, uh, utilitarianism, and, and others. And, and, and if you do that, you also see that, well, probably not everybody can do that. Not everybody can have a strong character, be virtuous, and, you know, committed to a noble pursuit of disinterested truth. Um, and it is sort of the enlightened elite uh, that sort of leads the masses. And and I think there is there's a real tension with this radical egalitarian idea, right, um, that I sketched uh, before, um, and that sometimes has the ring of being elitist, as you rightly said. Um, and 
the, the problem obviously is when we um, now analyze this question from the perspective of the last 10 years or so, we see that, you know, well-meaning liberal, the well-meaning liberal elite came up with, you know, rules for, let's say, free trade, rules for how we should govern banks, rules for how we, uh, you name it, right? Um, but a lot of citizens don't feel reflected in those rules, right? There yeah. seems to be sort of like a um, an underlying tension in this approach uh, when it comes to selling it to the common women and common man in the street. Um, and I think that's, um, so your, your question is, is spot on. It's a question that auto liberals need to tackle, right? And, and ultimately, if they take the idea of citizen sovereignty seriously, they also need to take the voice of the common man and women in the street seriously. Um, and ultimately to ask, how can you empower these voices, right? Um, rather than come up with intelligently designed top-down rules uh, that implement, you know, allegedly all the liberal ideas. But this notion of citizen sovereignty in some sense sounds a bit puzzling to me in a sort of ordo liberal context, because before you, right, we discussed a little bit how individuality actually has to evolve or be fostered by certain inst institutions or perhaps by certain social structures that that <clears throat> encourage it or that um, develop it. And so then to, to simply accept um, a kind of sovereignty just because we're committed to it seems to me like it's 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 in almost in direct tension with this idea that individuality actually has to develop and i know that you yourself also work on versions of paternalism which obviously touch on touch on this issue because right how how directly are you going to or how serious are you going to take the preferences of people in society or do you sometimes think that there's reason for questioning whether they are really either well-informed or even well-formed, right? Because that might also be a question that we, we can ask about preferences. Yeah, um, I, I absolutely agree. And in, in fact, if you sort of take the auto-liberal insight seriously, that there is sort of a reflexive relationship between, let's say, the, the social order, the institutional environment, and the individual, right? Let's say between structure on the one hand and agency. Well, then you might have to enter into a very intricate discussion of how, A, I mean, just from a positive point of view, how this reflexivity plays out, right? And here, as you rightly said, uh, the notion of an endogenous preference and belief formation plays an important role. But B, also, how we should maybe design institutions to shape individuals. And that is obviously a very difficult normative terrain, right? And in my own scholarship, I tend to highlight that if you allow for preference endogeneity and, uh, and beliefs, meaning preferences are endogenous both to situations, to the framing of situations, but also to the larger socioeconomic environment, well, then we, as liberals, might need to take the idea of autonomy and agency more seriously and ask what are actually the prerequisites for autonomous choice. And probably it's not enough to give people just information, 
and then hope for the best. But things like education, like critical reflection on your evolving beliefs and preferences might become center stage, right? And it's actually a point that, um, you know, I think Buchanan of all people also saw in his Natural and Artifactual Man, in his article of the, of the late 70s, where he said, people with evolving preferences that are shaped by their social environment need means of imagination and valuation to navigate this landscape. And I think that's a deep insight that more liberal scholars should take up and actually flesh out what this means in terms of normative conclusions that we can draw um, from them. Um, so, so I think so, that's that, that's an important point, actually. Yeah. So, so, so does that, let me try to understand that as well as I can. Does that mean that we value agency more because precisely the fact that people are choosing freely and so on allows them to gain experience and gain exposure to different to different i mean perhaps even different uh, types of consequences but also to different types of life different types of experiments or should we rather right sort of in an in an older paternalistic way take away a little bit of agency and perhaps right nudge them in a in a direction that we think is broadly beneficial for them because i i yeah, mm -hmm. you make you make a link to to Buchanan, which is interesting. I think there's also a Hayek essay where he reflects on um, the very fact that we can only call a choice moral. I think he argues when it's when it's a sort of voluntary choice. If it's not, then we also cannot evaluate the, the, the morality of it because then we cannot really say that it's been chosen on its own. But yeah, I, I, that seems to me a very very optimistic picture. On the other hand, uh, that. If, if only we let people experiment, they will always come up with, at least over time, what is best for them. Yeah, no, that's well taken your point here. Um, I, I think that experiments in living um, are, is one answer to the challenge of preference, endogeneity, and, and belief formation. Why is that the case? Well, a core idea to explain preference and endogeneity are actually cultural mental models, right? Uh, the idea, you know, mental models are concepts, narratives, ideologies, etc., that basically shape the way we attend, interpret, remember, respond to information we encounter, right? Now, importantly, mental models affect people's preferences since they're sort of like cognitive devices that help people to categorize the world around them, right? Including, for example, how we rank products, people, political parties, lifestyles, etc. Now, interestingly, at any moment in time, obviously all of us, we hold multiple mental models, right? Depending whether we are, you know, sitting in our office, whether we're in the supermarket, etc. And basically we can draw upon these mental models to interpret the situation around us, right? Um, and interestingly, um, obviously, the more I'm exposed to different environments, the more I'm exposed to different cultural mental models, right? And, um, you know, I'm not just stuck in, in a narrow view, but I have multiple ways to, you know, think about how to rank, you know, products, people, parties, lifestyles, etc. Now, that's one answer how you can actually increase agency. Uh, and it's obviously an old million answer, right? John Stuart Mill would say, experience in living is a core prerequisite for individual agency. 
Now, it's also optimistic, <laughs> right, in, in some sense. So, um, uh, if you look, for example, into the scholarship of Amartya Sen, Amartya Sen would say, well, yes, experiments in living is important, but what is also important is something he calls recent scrutiny. Um, now, he has been criticized for that, um, but in the sense that it's some form of elitist way of thinking like an academics, uh, academic about yeah, social yeah. structures. But I think his point is well taken. What is needed when we have an, 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 a thicker understanding of agency is not merely freedom and the power to act, sort of a negative notion of freedom, but actually freedom and the power to question, reassess, you know, the prevailing cultural models around us. And I think that's that's very important because only then you can tackle the intricate problem of preference adaptation, right? That we adapt simply to our social environment. Now, the elephant in the room is, can liberals say something about an institutional structure that enhances recent scrutiny, right? Vis-a-vis uh, -vis these evolving preferences and the cultural mental models that we're exposed to. And, and I think that's at least part of my ongoing um, scholarship. Um, how can you square this insight with a core liberal understanding of not telling people what to do and what to think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit because uh, not too long ago, um, in fact, in 2021, a book that you co-edited with Tim Krieger came out called Order Liberalism and European Economic Policy Between Realpolitik and Economic Utopia. So I want to talk a little bit about um, that sort of link that other scholars have also made between order liberalism and the European Union. So let me start with a very basic question. Is this a sort of descriptive claim that the um, European Union has a lot of order liberal elements or is this a more is this more a sort of argument that the European Union would benefit from being somewhat more order liberal in its uh, organization yeah I think there is sort of or there are voices on both sides <laughs> you know some people arguing that actually when we look at the design and the evolution of the European Union, that auto liberalism had, you know, an influence in that. And others would say, well, it actually didn't have enough influence and the European Union should be more auto liberal. Um, now, let me maybe start just historically. When we look at what happened in early European integration, well, we saw clearly that it was an auto liberal project somehow in the sense that, you know, the idea was, uh, to aim at European integration through integration through law, right? So there was clearly this, you know, uh, idea that um, particularly a market integration would be beneficial uh, and is an integration through through law, you know. And and obviously the idea then of the common market and the four basic freedoms of the single market, you know, including the free movement of goods, services, people, and capital is very order liberal in the sense, right, that you create a competitive market order on the European level that then has a disciplining function on the political process, right? So in that sense, um, the, the origin story, if you want to call it that way, of the European economic community was order liberal, right? And, and many order liberals at the time actually um, favored that type of um, economic integration uh, beyond 
the national borders. But now when we look at the actual development of European integration, that took a slightly different direction, right? Uh, that many other liberals at the time, let's say in the 70s and 80s, um, actually had wished for. Um, and the interesting thing is it obviously became not just an economic um, you know, integration, but also a, uh, a political and legal one that many other liberals saw, saw critical at the time. Yeah, so so let me try to understand a little bit more. I, I, I saw this weekend a, a, a nice presentation on Jacques Rueff, uh, a, a French thinker who was uh, relatively close to the Order Liberals, and he was one of the first judges on the court. And um, in, in the presentation, it became very clear that he sort of believed in what you just called the sort of disciplinary role. So he gave an example of early sort of subsidies to the to the Deutsche Bahn, the, the German railway uh, company um, that were would not be allowed under this this uh, this sort of arrangement because it was favoritism on a national level and that within the common market would no longer be allowed. And I think to this day we see elements of this in Europe. I always love that the local football club cannot be bailed out anymore because because of European rules. That's at least how the Dutch understand it. I don't think that that's how all European countries understand the rules, but. So, so, so there's interesting elements of that, but there's also often a link in, in sort of liberal circles to federalism. So would an ordo liberal model for the European Union uh, move beyond merely shared legal rules and also include a kind of federal structure? Or would that already be going too far, as you just indicated? Yeah, and I, I think you find um, sort of voices in the ordo liberal camp for both. So those that want to stick... Uh, to the, the project of economic integration and those that favor some form of you know, federalism on the European level. Now, the latter camp that favors some form of uh, federalism or on the European level typically also understands that the European project is not just an economic project, but is also a peace project. Uh, it's a project that, you know, particularly after the horrors of the 20th century, understands that also on the political level, there needs to be some form of coordination if we want to have a stability of the liberal order in Europe. And I think that's an important insight, right? Um, now, order liberals also of the second type that favors some form of, um, you know, federalism on the European level are very quick to point out that we need to democratically legitimize that, right? And um, the problem that many order liberals see with the current project is that um, th there's a lack in this democratic legitimization that yeah. the European Commission, uh, the European Council uh, also has power beyond uh, democratic legitimization in the European Parliament. And I think that's an important insight, uh, just like, you know, political insight and normative insight, that that's a critique. And the other point is that auto liberals are often quick to point out that the, Euro the EU often violates the idea of subsidiarity, right? Uh, which is a powerful idea. Uh, basically, the idea that political authorities should be located at the lowest institutional unit uh, with competence for the issue at hand, right? Uh, and often when we have problems in the EU, uh, auto liberals point out we jump 
too high uh, to solve local problems. Uh, and obviously, you have the typical knowledge problems uh, when you do that, right? Uh, but you also might undermine competition. Uh, right, because you do not have sort of like competition between different jurisdictions, how to best solve local problems, but you try to have a one size fits all um, solution. And I think that uh, is, is a point that many auto liberals actually point out um, is sort of a, a failure in the construction of how problems, economic, political, social problems are solved um, in the EU. Um, yeah. So if you present it as a sort of um legal political project that's democratic in orientation would then its major um major sort of enemy or perhaps um opposite be a kind of a technocratic europe is is that how we should understand it or i i think that's right and and, and interestingly obviously uh you could uh when you go back to you know the earlier part of our conversation you could see a technocratic EU as being auto-liberal um, if they just follow auto-liberal principles, right? Yeah. But in fact, um, I think that the core problem is that sooner or later, if you have that take on the EU, then you will run into tensions with you know, core principles of liberalism, right? Um, and interestingly, you know, auto-liberals often were very good and are very good in pointing that out on the European level, but maybe they're less good in pointing that out on their uh, on the national level uh, when it comes to grounding, uh, you know, their national uh, political and economic agenda in actually uh, democratic um, democratic legitimization. Now, the other point, you know, that that I just want to mention is that auto liberals were quite critical with the implementation of the euro right uh, and 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 that's sometimes seen as a point where they made good arguments and sometimes you know people think um that they're euroskeptics but i think um the interesting point here is that auto liberals favored um not a locomotive theory of the introduction of the euro uh which would be you introduce the euro very quickly and then the political and economic um, structures will follow. But what they actually had or favored was a, a so-called coronation theory, right? Where the common currency basically crowns a long process of real economic and political integration mm. in Europe. And you can already see the auto-liberal idea here is one that, to some extent, relies on bottom-up approaches that are then accompanied by you know legal institutional changes and not the other way around so so is, is one way of understanding that critique that europe socially and culturally was not yet one and yet we have one sort of economic regime and those are bound to be in tension with one another in the same way that we earlier talked about tensions between the social and the economic order i I think that's right. Uh, I think actually auto liberals could have made that point much more forcefully. Um, I, I think they often stuck to more economic arguments, you know, what would be the right type of economic policy. And they actually often stuck to a more technocratic discussion, um, um, which is kind of ironic. But obviously what you just rightly said is um, that if you move too quickly on an institutional supranational level, you might miss 
what's actually going on culturally, uh, socially, politically on the ground, right? And what we obviously saw over the last, um, you know, 15, 20 years or so is a cultural backlash actually against the EU. It was not just a backlash against, you know, the euro as an economic institution. It was also a backlash against this idea that, you know, their European ideals that we as local communities, you know, let's say a Catalan community on the one hand, a, you know, Basque community, but then, you know, a Flemish community, et cetera, need to follow, right? And I think that is uh, a real tension. Uh, and you could see that the EU, uh, including the Euro, often was a technocratic um, project favored by liberal elites, right? And in that sense, there is a tension if you forget actually what are the political, social, and economic preferences of uh, people in local communities. We're nearly reaching the end, but I, I want to ask something now that that I think I'd never thought about this before, so this might be a very stu stupid idea, but uh, the classic liberal idea is sometimes that in the end, every liberal individual is a cosmopolitan um, sort of rational, broad thinker who's probably not religious anymore and who has family ties, but is more dependent actually on ties of, of their own choice. But if you think about the evolution in the past 20 years, we've actually saw more regional um, regional identities emerge. We saw the Scots not being sure anymore whether they wanted to be part of the English project. We saw, of course, the UK not being sure anymore whether they wanted to be part of the European project. In Belgium, there's separatist movements. In, in Spain, there's separatist movement. So if I put this in a really weird way, were, were, the, were the original order liberals not smarter on this point? And did they not recognize the lasting importance of sort of regional ties and, and um, sort of um, um, conservative social values, if we put yeah. it that way? Now, I think that's that's a good question to end because it's a, it's a big question. <laughs> And we can only have a, a, a broad philosophical answer. I can attempt to give a broad philosophical answer. Now, it's true that, you know, the sociological strand in order liberalism clearly saw the need to ground um, economic, political, and social institutional actions in local communities, right? And in that sense, it's very much Ostromian, right? It's following, you know... Uh, this idea that uh, a lot of solutions need to have uh, a lot of problems need to have social uh, local solutions because they are actually addressing the needs and preferences of people on the ground right um, and I think that's very much part of auto liberal scholarship that then you know in the way for example the EU developed was often neglected right and in that sense the EU uh, how it developed was not auto liberal because it neglected um, these, uh, you know, needs and preferences of local communities. On the other hand, I also want to make a point that Eleanor Ostrom also points out, and I think that's also order liberal. You cannot just rely on evolutionary processes in local communities because you might end up in small-scale tyrannies, right? Yeah. Uh, if you want to fight for the idea of a liberal order, you also might need to fight for um, liberal ideals, including the protection of individual rights that exceed 
you know, local solutions. Uh, and obviously, if you think about many social, economic, and political problems um, of our time, you cannot just tackle them on the local scale, right? Yeah. So in that sense, you both need to discuss these, you know, supra-local <laughs> uh, institutional questions uh, while, while obviously respecting what's going on in local communities. And in, in effect, you could say probably this tension and, you know, some, some form of trade-off here is at the core of how auto liberals should think about renewing their own agenda. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. This was a, a really uh, wide-ranging conversation, I think, over ordo-liberalism, but I greatly enjoyed it. So thank you very much, uh, Malta, for all your insights. Well, thanks for having me, Irvin, and I hope my answers were not too long and winded. But um, this is very much part of ongoing scholarship of myself, but of also a young uh, group of, of auto-liberals and we hope to renew this this agenda and show that there's actually a lot of interesting insights uh, if we do not just stick to the original ideas, but try to actually translate them and develop and advance them uh, in the 21st century. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.